Greetings, everyone. <coughs> so I've got a question for you. Are you a Marmite lover or Marmite hater? Lover, lover, hater. <coughs> well, the makers of Marmite have actually issued a gene test as part of a marketing campaign. And you can actually send off a cheek swab. <laughs> the wonders of science today. You can send off a cheek swab and see if you are genetically disposed to love Marmite or not. Here are some pictures of people who um, have taken the test, and you can see them trying out various types of Marmite here. How are you getting on there, Jonathan? So uh, this was a canny piece of marketing, because what they realized is that people who didn't actually like market, Marmite tended to be Japanese. And so they noticed a lot of Japanese people really couldn't stand uh, Marmite. But they found a couple of people who did love it if you started early enough. So, unfortunately, um, if you are a Marmite hater, it's apparently part of your DNA, and there's nothing that can be done for you uh, to make you more loving towards Marmite, which is a shame, because as a Marmite lover, I can tell you, you're missing out. Now, today's talk is about how, um, well, it's really about the subject of love, and how, more to the point, we can become more loving towards things that we may not initially love. We're going to look at a section of a letter which St. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And as you may know, this is Paul's unsurpassed description of the nature of love. And Jonathan has very kindly agreed to come and read it from the amplified version here. It's not on. It is on. Love endures long and is patient and kind, never is envious nor bores over with jealousy, it is not boastful, it does not display itself haughtily, it is not arrogant and inflated with pride, it is not rude and does not unbecomingly, does not act unbecomingly. Love does not insist on its own rights or on its own way, it is not self-seeking, it is not touchy or fretful, fretful or resentful, it keeps no record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at injustice and unrighteousness, but rejoices when right and truth prevail. Love bears up under anything and everything that comes, is ever ready to believe the best of every person. It hopes, its, sorry, its hopes are unfading under all circumstances and it endures everything. Love never fails. As for prophecy, it will be fulfilled and pass away. As for tongues, they will be destroyed and cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For our knowledge is incomplete and our teaching imperfect. But when the complete and perfect comes, the incomplete and perfect will vanish away. Thank you very much, Jonathan. So that passage found in Corinthians chapter 13 is St. Paul's unparalleled description of love, one of the very best summaries of his spiritual and theological thoughts, and of course it sets the standard incredibly high. But it would do. 
because uh, what Paul's really describing here is what God's love towards us is really like. God is patient. He puts up with our faults, our failures without grumbling. He really is committed to us and he's in it for the long haul. God is kind. He puts up, uh, his, this word refers, this kindness word refers to active goodness and that goes forward on behalf of others. Genuine love is never unkind or mean, but it respects others and it reaches out towards them. We often think of God's intervention in terms of supernatural feats, like healings and miracles. But God's kindness really does have the same power to transform people's lives, because it's always a very personal kindness that's related just to you. It can get under the radar of so many of our defenses. People just melt when they realize how kind God is to them personally. He's thought of you. He's thought of the way you tick. And he's done something for you that speaks just to you. So all of us actually have that spirit-empowered bandwidth to be a bit more kind once we've experienced it from God. You could go on and say God is not boastful. He doesn't need to impress us. There are so many occasions uh, in the gospel where you see Jesus just slipping through the crowd. He specifically asks people not to draw attention to what he's done for them because he doesn't need the limelight. And uh, Matthew 11.29 confirms this when Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, because I'm gentle and lowly in heart. God is not rude. He never needs to bully or manipulate us. Jesus never put anybody down. He can be quite forthright. Sometimes he'll pinpoint some dangerous misconceptions we may have about our state before God that we must deal with before we can move on. And he will get straight to the point, but that is the mercy of God operating for our good. God keeps no records of wrongs. I'm going to say that one again. God keeps no record of wrongs. He doesn't keep an account of our mistakes so that he can one day judge us. Our regrets, our failures, sins, mistakes, they don't actually defeat God. They are the soil in which the forgiveness flowers. As Bill Johnson says, he's a lot better than we think, so we're going to have to change the way we think. God hopes and he believes. He sees your potential even when you doubt it and despair of yourself. So when we're having our worst day, God loves us. His default setting is to believe the best of every person. And we could go on running through that text we've just heard, thinking of all the ways in which God loves us so perfectly. Uh, and way God fits that description. When I hear that famous text, I sometimes find myself half listening to the beauty of the words, but at the same time, I can't help comparing myself to that very high standard and forlornly hoping that maybe there are one or two lines I might be able to put a tick next to. And one of the ways of approaching this passage can be to replace the word love with your own name. And it's really uncomfortable. So you start off saying, Louis is patient. Louis is kind. And then you stop there and think, oh no. But actually, it's a great uh, exercise to do for all of us. It's a high standard that we can't achieve in our own strength. And that, thankfully, is the whole point. Because it's God's intervention in your life. It's his grace 
that's going to help us to show love in increasing measure. So the question is, how can we learn to love like God loves? And our first heading then is get connected. Now Jesus has so much to say on the subject of connection. Let's hear an excerpt from John 15. It's one of the best metaphors about our connection to God. The one Jesus himself used where he's the vine and we're the branches. A very appropriate one for Vineyard Church. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Now abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Now, there are a couple of points to draw out here. Firstly, very obvious one, but there's only one way a branch is ever going to grow, and that's through connection. You see, being close is not good enough. A branch that's one millimetre away and yet separated from the vine is not con connected. So if you and I are going to grow to be more loving, it's going to be because of that connection with Jesus. It's not going to be because we're hanging around in the vicinity of other branches. There are lots of Christians who are happy to go to church, feed off second-hand bits of revelations that are given to others. But that's the equivalent, really, of a branch lying on the ground disconnected. We just can't bear fruit in that state. So a branch has actually got to be linked to the vine to draw strength from it. And if we can do just one thing today, it is to intentionally connect with him. So if that's speaking to you and you're feeling that you've lost connection, don't waste a moment trying to make it on your own. Come back to him and reconnect. Secondly, uh, there's a well-known saying that we become like who we spend time with. Have you noticed that? It may be laboring the point to say it, but a branch that is connected to a vine really can't fail to become anything other than like the vine it's connected to. And there's no strain or striving or over-trying involved. After a while, the branch is just able to produce fruit after its own kind, not because it's making a great big effort, but simply because it's attached. That's it. So if we're connected to Jesus, then we will inevitably end up resembling more of God's likeness because we're receiving his spiritual DNA. Now, Rick Joyner posted a comment a little while ago, and he said this. It is still overwhelming to me that we can know God and have a personal relationship with him. As his children, we can come boldly into the throne room and talk with God Almighty any time we want. I've been walking him with him for 45 plus years now, and it still seems too good to be true. But it is true. God Almighty really does love us, and he wants a relationship with us. So I want to encourage you 
that you have a father in heaven that wants to hear from you. Now, we all have or have had parents or guardians, and you know how it is. You can never satisfy your parents' longing to tell them enough about your life. Parents want us to share with them the things that we're doing in life all the time. And why is that? Well, if you think about your mother, your mother has a mother's love for you, and they just can't help themselves. They want to know every last thing. And they're thinking about you all the time anyway. They've got this mother's love, just as a father, but God has a father's love for you. And I don't think it's getting into theological deep water to say that God also has a mother's love for us. He wants to know what you're up to in life. And he wants you to know that he's thinking of you all the time. So get connected. Tell him everything. That's the first thing we can do. But what else can we do to show love in increasing measure? Can I ask you a question? How would you recognize true Christian spirituality? What would you say is the actual litmus test? Because some people say there's a certain quality, like a flavor about some Christians. You know, a believer whose life has actually taken on that unique character of Christ-likeness. And one of the characteristics of Christ-likeness is acceptance. People who demonstrate pure acceptance say with their eyes as well as their voice that we are free to be who we are in their company. There's no need for us to pretend around these people. No need to be forced to a best behavior version of ourselves. So that is our second heading, is accept people for who they are. A large part of acceptance is letting people be as they are, with all their uniqueness, all their beauty, and all their flaws. In Luke 9, uh, when the, it says this, when the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. And then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowds learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them, and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. So welcoming. One of the rudest things that the Pharisees could think to say about Jesus was this, Luke 15, 2. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And it works the other way around too. In Matthew 10:40, Jesus says, anyone who accepts you accepts me, and anyone who accepts me accepts the one who sent me. So when you meet somebody who accepts you, they seem immediately to like you for who you are. Even when they see somebody who's struggling with a lot of things, they will find something good to highlight in that person. They have received God's love, and they've accepted the truth of it for themselves. They find it a very natural thing to extend that to the rest of us. You could say that they're carrying the virus of acceptance, and it's highly contagious. Everyone they meet just seems to catch it. I think of Luca and Narelle as great examples of this. Uh, for those who are visitors here, I'm talking about a couple who used to be members of this church, and you see their love for people just spilt out of them as an overflow. But they weren't striving to be super nice. Or, on the contrary, in fact, it was just an unconditional acceptance that was never forced. So we can learn from them, or rather catch from them, that positive virus of acceptance and welcome, and extend it to people that we come across 
during our day. John Wimber used to carry around a quote from John Wesley in his Bible that said this, do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Our third heading is accept yourself as God accepts you. Underneath everything, all those struggles, all those career meetings, all the knowing only in part, all the not knowing, all the guessing, all the longing, we all of us just really want to be loved. But we often struggle to accept the love. God sometimes has to do a bit of a work, he has to shift our false view of him and work on our understanding of him as a God of acceptance. It's taken me a long time to internalize that. And sometimes I actually lose sight of this and I suddenly flip into cynicism. And I have to go back and make myself accept that God does not keep a record of wrongs. The way we love others is a direct reflection of the way that we love ourselves. If I'm keeping a record of wrongs about myself forever, reminding myself about my failings, then I'm going to be the same with others around me. So when Jesus said to love your neighbours as yourself, it's not so much a proposition as a fact. We really do love our neighbours as ourselves. It's one of those vicious circles, isn't it? So if I find myself in a place where I'm not able to demonstrate much love and acceptance, it's probably that I don't feel very loved and accepted for myself. And that will be an area of my life where I've not yet said yes to God's wholehearted acceptance of me. So at some point, we're going to have to look at ourselves with a bit of compassion and abandon the need to expect perfection. And that means learning to forgive ourselves. Easier said than done, especially in a city like Oxford, which places such great store on moral and intellectual perfectionism. So in the context of forgiving myself, it's helped me to start to see forgiveness as an actual gift from the Father that I can use to begin to free myself up from a stifling grip of an unforgiving spirit. Recognising that the score is never going to be even and that I can never make up for areas of imperfection in the past can also help me to be tender towards myself. And the same is true for everyone in the room. A couple of years ago, Luca put up a wonderful list on Facebook of all the scriptures that define and confirm who we are in God's eyes. Beautiful, Psalm 45. Unique, Psalm 139. Loved, Jeremiah 31. Special, Ephesians 2. Created for a purpose, Jeremiah 29. Cared for, Ephesians 3. Lovely, Daniel 12. Precious, 1 Corinthians. Important, 1 Peter. Forgiven, Psalm 103. A new creation, 2 Corinthians 5, protected, Psalm 121, empowered, Philippians 4, chosen, John 5, family, Ephesians 2.19. And as I was looking down that list, a scoffing little voice in my head said, oh, you don't want to bother with that. That's just for sad people who are low on self-esteem and they use scripture to prop themselves up for self-help. And then I thought, you know, just hang on a sec. That is so cynical. Why am I thinking like that? Because when we see a list like that, we see a description of ourselves that's patently not true yet. And that's a very big yet. 
because there are times in our lives when we are not behaving in a lovely way and we can't call ourselves lovely. Or we might have developed a false belief about ourselves based on bad experiences. And that internal evidence can jar against the truth of what scripture is saying about us. But these scriptures are not for losers. They are for the whole of humanity. And some of them would be really helpful at giving us the truth about the very areas that we're struggling in. So I went and looked up a few scriptures as a way of internalizing what God wants me to know. For example, Psalm 103 says this, He forgives every sin. He heals your diseases, every one. He redeems you from hell, saves your life. He crowns you with love and mercy, a paradise crown. He wraps you in goodness, beauty eternal. He renews your youth. You are always young in his presence. Now that's not self-help, that's God's help. But we do have a part to play in allowing God to help us. The promises are in the word for every believer, but they're yours only in experience if you take them by faith and you take ownership of them. Otherwise, they just remain floating promises. So why don't you look up one or two of those promises that speak to you and help you know the truth of God's care for you? Our next pointer is to look for and meditate on expressions of God's love. The evangelist D.L. Moody had his own way of describing love. He said this, Joy is love exalted. Peace is love in repose. Long-suffering is love enduring. Gentleness is love in society. Goodness is love in action. Faith is love on the battlefield. Meekness is love in school. And restraint is love in training. One of the ways in which we can find expressions of God's love is by seeing reflections of it in our friends and our church family and in nature. We're all created in the likeness of God and the way he loves. So to give you an example, uh, one expression of love that I like to look for in others is the way um, that different people laugh. Have you ever thought that your own laugh is actually tailor-made? Have you ever do you think, been designed to laugh in a certain way. Your laugh is actually a reflection of God's joy. You might have a plight titter or a filthy cackle, uh, but whatever it is, it's worth celebrating and enjoying to the full because joy is love exalted. But it's not just your laugh. You're also created with specific aspects of God's character that shines out to the world around you. Every person here really is unique. So, for example, there are some people in this church, one of them's a great friend who's an intercessor. And she once said to me, you know, I just long to pray for people. I, I just can't help wanting to pray for people. And I thought, well, that is so who you are. That very prayerful nature, that intercessory gift in you is the core of who you are. Or take another example. I've got a friend who's incredibly generous always looking to treat me to things, buying little presents, picking up the bill, just exploding with this generous heart. And I thought, you know, that's the nature of God, that very generous spirit in you. And the reason these friends finding, find themselves wanting to pray for people or, you know, give to people is that they're carrying that part of Jesus' DNA. Jesus already prays for you and is generous to everyone.
So he has created you with different aspects of his own nature so that we can really be encouraged to see God in each other. I was uh, with my parents a few days ago, and my mother is one of those really encouraging and appreciative people. Um, one example of that is how she responds to my cooking. Now, I don't think it's news amongst people here that I'm, I'm not the world's best cook, and I, I do struggle a little bit. But, you know, the amazing thing is that when my parents come to lunch, it doesn't matter what emerges from that oven, they're like two lovely Labradors. You know, they just woo, wolf it down, and they're so grateful and appreciative. They just wolf down everything. Uh, and they say all lots, lots of lovely things, unjudgmental and complimentary. And I can tell, you know, they genuinely mean it. But, you know, the thing is, I find myself catching myself thinking, well, yeah, maybe I can cook. Because the extraordinary thing is that when they come round in that atmosphere of no judgmentalism, the food sort of, it's passable. Yeah, it's okay. So believing is seeing. And believing in people really does mean seeing eventually a different result. As it says in the scripture that we looked at, that Jonathan read for us at the beginning, love is ever ready to believe the best in every person. It hopes, its hopes are unfading under all circumstances, and it endures everything, even really crispy chicken with charcoal potatoes. So how else can we see God's love operating in people? When you look around this church, you see people who are really serving their hearts out. They show up, they're looking out for your children, they're serving your coffee, buying your breakfast and laying it out for you, baking cakes, they're making sure you're properly welcomed, they're setting up the microphones, they're running the words on the screen for you, they're practicing and rehearsing and playing and singing so that you can worship, they're praying for your heart before you arrive, they're putting the chairs out for you to sit on, and then they're packing the whole thing away afterwards. And that is a reflection of how God himself loves to serve you. It's quite touching, isn't it? Because goodness is love in action. So every one of you here is a gift from God that he's invested in. He's invested himself into you. And that's why we look for God in everyone that we meet. Not just Christians, but everyone. Because everyone's created in his image. They might not know him yet. But if you look, you can see at least one expression of the nature of God. You can really see his heart if you look. And if we can find him in each other, then we can highlight that and encourage it and say, you know what, I really see Jesus in you in this particular area of your life. The Bible says, encourage one another and build each other up, just in, as, in fact, you are already doing. Now, last Sunday, there was a, a TV program uh, about the Queen, and Annette Curie shared a story of one woman coming up to the Queen at a private event in her earlier days and saying, has anybody told you that you have a remarkable resemblance to Her Majesty the Queen? <laughs> to which she replied, how very reassuring. Um, but it is very reassuring to see our friends becoming Christ-like, like the King of Kings, because that's what they should be doing. And so we need to encourage each other when we see that coming to fruition. So we've looked for connection with God, first and foremost, who's always accepting and welcoming us. We offer that acceptance to each other and to ourselves. 
And then we can look to see God's love operating in each other. And finally, we can look for expressions of God's love in so many areas of creation at large. Romans 1.20 said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So to take one example of creation, there are some people here who love dogs. Now, I don't have a dog, but if you've met Andrew and Mandy, who run this church, they have a dog, Jen. And you'll see that she is so loyal to them. It's ridiculous. So dogs are incredibly faithful, aren't they? They just can't give up on you. Even if a human has mistreated them, they will still nearly always return faithfulness. And the Lord says, you know, that is a reflection of who I am. You might mistreat me. You may be unfaithful to me, but I will always remain faithful to you. So you can take any example of creation and consider it, and you will find a reflection of God there. I've actually got a little scribble in my margin here saying, what about sharks and tarantulas? <laughs> so I'm like, okay, so you just have to think that that baby tarantula has got a mummy tarantula that loves it very much. Okay, that gets me out of that. <laughs> in all honesty, I can't say that I've ever meditated on the faithfulness or meekness of a cat, but I suspect that what God has taken away in terms of faithfulness, he has more than made up for in terms of self-esteem. So there's always something, there's always something that you can ponder about in creation. So look today for God. Set out to find him. Look for his attributes in everyone and everything you see. Because when we think like this, we are fixing our thoughts on what is true, honourable, right, pure and lovely and admirable. And we're thinking about things that are excellent and worthy of praise. Amen. Now, what I suggest we do is, uh, if you would like to, is just turn to the person sitting next to you and discuss one thing from uh, this talk that might have touched you that you feel that God might be saying you could uh, do for him this week. Maybe one thing about accepting people, loving people, accepting yourself, loving yourself that you can do for God this week as a result of the suggestion from this talk. And then you can discuss one thing that you're going to do for somebody else this week as a result of those suggestions. So ask each other, what's touched you on your heart today? Has God been speaking to you in any areas of this service? And then that can lead on to some ministry. So one thing for God and one thing for someone else. Over to you.